0: Can't get enough of football? Chance, goal! Superhuman! Special, special goal! Incredible! Just incredible! Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders. Your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football. From the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Hello and welcome to another edition of the Football Insiders podcast, the podcast home of Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Today we have someone who, if you've been around in football for a while, you'd know this name. He's a household name in some respects in terms of football writing, and that's Matthew Hall. Most recently he published a book from Fair Play Publishing called If I Started to Cry, I Wouldn't Stop. But he's also the author of The Away Game, and Robbie Slater's The Hard Way. He's produced and written an award-winning film adaptation of The Away Game, he's covered four World Cups, he's written for a number of newspapers and magazines, and he's campaigned against human rights violations in sport and human trafficking through sports. He's lived in America for the best part, oh, I think probably of 14 years or something like that now, and lives in New York City or in Brooklyn, more to the point. But he's from Perth, Western Australia, and he is, as well as writing, he is also a soccer coach and um, a teacher. I'm delighted to welcome Matthew Hall. Welcome,
1: Matt. Good morning to you, Bonita, and uh, good evening from me.
0: Um, First questions first, and we've been asking, we started these podcasts basically to give people sort of 20 to 30 minutes of something else to listen to while they're in shutdown. And of course, for... Unfortunate people in Melbourne and, and around, they are back in shutdown. But you're sort of living in the epicentre of what, or what was the epicentre for some time,
1: of Brooklyn in New York. How are things in Brooklyn? Uh, well, it's uh, a- as a coronavirus survivor, because I had it back in March for, uh, for uh, 14 days of hell, I would recommend to everyone that they don't catch it. And uh, it's, it's definitely not a hoax. It's definitely a real thing, and uh, it's not a very pleasant experience. Um, We in New York City are now in, I think we're in the third, heading into the fourth phase of reopening. Um, People are walking around the streets. Everyone wears masks. uh, Restaurants remain closed, except some restaurants have outdoor seating arrangements, if they can have that. Bars are closed. Some stores are open. public transport is open. Some people uh, go to work in offices, but most people are still working from home. I'll see progress when schools reopen, but we don't know when that's going to happen in uh, September. There's a couple of different plans for that, whether kids will go to school for half the time and then uh, do half online or c- schools will remain closed. Um but when schools reopen, that's when I'll see that we're we're through the absolute very worst. Outside of New York, it's a completely different issue. Um, the country's uh, turned into yes. uh, the country has turned into uh, what we were going through in March, and because many 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 states haven't paid any uh, attention to. Uh, trying to flatten the curve they completely ignored health advice they're now sort of getting a lot of blowback on that which is very sad
0: and what about i i I hardly dare ask this question but what what about soccer i mean you're 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 a coach um what's happened there has there been any games or any training at all
1: um, so at the top level, uh, the professional level, <clears throat> Major League Soccer um, is playing a tournament in Orlando, in Florida, which is um, a compressed season. They're doing a kind of like a mini World Cup. The National Women's Soccer League is uh, this weekend complete completing completed um, a tournament again. Um, they had an eight team tournament. Uh, in Utah, where everyone was in the same venue. It was supposed to be a nine-team tournament, but uh, Orlando Pride, the team that uh, Tom Somani used to coach, um, ex-Matilda's uh, coach and the current New Zealand coach, um, that team had, uh, I think, five players and a bunch of staff members uh um, test positive for the virus just before they were to leave for Utah. So they had to drop out of the tournament. Um, so at the top level, the seasons got turned into mini tournaments. At the grassroots level, it depends where you are in the country. In New York, uh, our club, Brooklyn City, has to follow uh, U.S. soccer's reopening guidelines and then down to the regional Uh, administration's guidelines, but we're allowed to run soccer camps rather than club training, which is kind of not a black and white distinction, but you can run day camps during the summer vacation, the school summer vacation, and several clubs are actually running Uh, soccer camps, which are day-long training sessions kind of with a lot of fun involved, and social distancing. So we can't play uh, games like 4v4 or 5v5 or 6v6, but you can do training exercises and training uh, games and have a bit of fun. So the kids can get out there and play a ball in a space, but we can't actually play games.
0: So I guess you're doing that now then because it is summer holidays there now.
1: Yeah, so, uh, for the past three weeks, our club, Brooklyn City, has been running camps and, um, uh, it's, it's been very successful and very popular because kids want to play and parents want their kids to play. And, uh, there's a lot of, uh, health and safety standards that we, that we have to meet and that we also meet, um, from things like kids, uh, uh, having to do basic stuff like wash their hands or sanitize their hands before they go into the venue, um, to wearing masks when they're not on a field, to uh, not going up and hugging their friends and uh, having uh, a small, we call them pods, like a group of eight kids um, that doesn't mix with any other groups uh, throughout the week. So um, it's it's a challenge, but it's definitely a challenge that's uh, – that's worth meeting if it means that um, the kids can can get involved in the game and continue their love for it. We had um, uh, for three months we the club was running uh, online training sessions. Um, so every day a kid had an option to do a fitness uh, session with a coach from the club, and then twice a week they would do a, a uh, we call it living room skills, so it could be done anywhere um, in a in a confined space with a ball, plus um, have a team meeting. So we're talking about uh, kids between the ages of 8 and 14, 15, 16, and for many of them, uh, football, soccer, playing is also a social exercise. So just hanging out with their friends online in a Zoom meeting, they talked about dogs with their teammates, which is very important. It's not just about being able to do 100 keepy-uppies in your bedroom. It's about talking to your teammates and uh, having banter and and things like that, and that was very important.
0: Yeah, socialising through soccer.
1: Absolutely, and it's one of the the fundamental pillars of of youth soccer is the socialisation aspect.
0: I, I, and it must be very difficult, having once upon a time, a long time ago, been a little girl, but also having neighbors of little girls, um, to stop little girls from hugging one another because that's just sort of what they do, especially if they're playing in a sports team together. Right, so exactly. It must be challenging from a coach point of view.
1: Right. And uh, it's uh, one of the big challenges is, uh, is telling kids, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. And. Um, Child, as childhood educators uh, know, and any listening to this would know, the way that kids learn is being told what they can do rather than what they can't do. They'll listen to positive reinforcement. They won't listen to negative. So we have to tell them what they can do rather than no, 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 no. But it's a real challenge if someone just innocently runs up to a friend they haven't seen in three months and goes to to hug them. So. It's yeah. um, it's a big challenge. But we're through it. Apparently, uh, if we stay on target, um, we're looking to be able to um, have a, this A season resume uh, sometime in September. So we'll see.
0: All the best with it. I'm sure everybody listening who's who's also involved with junior football, um, junior soccer, will have similar stories and will also learn a lot from what you've just said, I'm, I'm sure. Um, particularly in Australia, Victoria is not likely to see, is not going to see a season at all this year, which is right. really quite sad. Yeah. Right. Um, let's turn to your most recent book, If I Started to Cry, I Wouldn't Stop. I've got ai don't want to sound like I'm name dropping, but I was talking with Lucas Steele the other day and um, I actually held up the book to him as we were talking on Zoom and I said, do you recognise this title? And of course, <laughs> um, he thought only for a few seconds and he said, I believe I said it. After that game. Um, and he, and he act, without even seeing that you were the author, he said, I said it to Matthew Hall. So I, I thought that was a fantastic that he remembered um, where, when and to whom he said it, um, which is a great segue into talking about your book and talking about that particular story and what, what brought you to put all of these stories together. Um, tell us a bit about that moment when he said that and then We'll go on to other aspects of it.
1: So as uh, many of us remember, um, Australia bounced out of uh, the 2006 World Cup with um, uh, Lucas has probably uh, moved on a bit now, but with a tackle by Lucas Neal that had a bit of controversy around it. And then for many of us, uh, for the Australian fans and the the media industry and the players following uh, Australia at the 2006 World Cup, they all went home. Um, Except I stayed in Germany to uh, continue working for Fairfax, which was the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, um, uh, who I worked with for about 10 years. And uh, Lucas had told me after the game, I think I'm recalling this correctly, I will call you. So my decision then was, where is he going to call me? So I wasn't going to go to Australia. I would planned a holiday in Greece after the World Cup. I wasn't going to go to Greece. And the catch was Fairfax had given us, the, the journalists who were covering the World Cup, Fairfax uh, mobile phones with a Fairfax number. And that was the number that Lucas had for me while we were in Germany. So, before he got ushered off to a bus, and uh, he knew that he was going to call me on the number he had for me in Germany. So, I said to Fairfax, I've got to stay in Germany because Lucas Neal, who the story of Australia's World Cup was now about, was going to call me. So, I went to Berlin and I stayed in Berlin for about four days waiting for Lucas Neal to call. Yeah. Goodness. <laughs> it could have called at any moment. And yeah. uh, the great thing about Lucas Neal is he is true to his word. He might be a bit slow on the uptake, but he is true to his word. And he did call. And uh, he apologized, said, sorry, I couldn't get to you earlier, but I, I just wanted to uh, get some time between what happened. And then we had a, an amazing conversation about what it was to be like in that moment. Uh, the infamous uh, last minutes of the game against Italy and how your whole life uh, works towards that point and in a second you think that everything's gone. And what that summed up for me um, was a theory I've had about football for a very long time, which is how it's on the field. It's always decided by the most minuscule of millimeters that can decide a game that can decide a career that can decide what happens to a nation in one case italy and in another case australia and there are so many forces and pressure though on those millimeters that the outcome can never be fully decided so so in that in that instance italy's history the way italy plays the italy's whole attitude and then Australia being the, the smaller country in the, in the scope of a World Cup and Lucas Neal being the player that he was and Fabio Grosso being the player that he was. And then all these things all came together on that little piece of grass. And then as we went on and on and on and on and on and, on and spoke about that whole experience, Lucas Neal came out and I think I probably asked him a question, I don't remember the exact words right now, I, it, it could have been the old journalistic uh, question, how do you feel? Um, but I believe after we'd been speaking for a while, he said, if I started to cry, I wouldn't stop. And I think that to me summed up not just how many Australians who had followed football for so many years felt about that moment, but also how they felt about the whole experience of being an Australian player, an Australian fan, people who are emotionally invested in the sport. Now, that crying doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. It could be a positive thing, but it's just an outpouring of emotion about their belief in the sport.
0: I think that's a fabulous point and there are so many things that we could talk about which uh, you could wrap around that quote, um, both on the field and off the field. Uh, your book, If I Started to Cry I Wouldn't Stop, is is for those who haven't read it, it's a series of of short stories um, which obviously includes the one we've just talked about, but there's a whole range. It starts with um, Mark Bosnich in 1996 and ends with Harry Kewell and around... 2016 or something like that um tell us uh, i mean of of all the uh, you've had lots and lots of experiences and there's some really funny stories and a couple of poignant stories with um in there um what stands out to you the most i mean you've had this really fascinating journalistic and and writing career from football what stands out to you the most and in in that book
1: oof um I I knew that there would be a question like this and I didn't think about it in any detail. Um, I, I think one of the things I, I enjoyed, um, I was never like a match day reporter who would write a match report and file 400, 500 words on the whistle and tell you how great it was, uh, Sydney Olympic against Marconi or even, um, Australia against Ser- Serbia at the 2010 World Cup, of which there's a story why I would never be a, a, a match day reporter. Um, if I could help it, I was covering um, Australia v. Serbia at the 2010 World Cup for The Guardian uh, in the UK. And uh, you have to, the way it works is you file um, your story right on the whistle. So you have to get all your words seriously two or three minutes after the whistle and so you have to have your story completely written and to someone like me who likes to think about things it's a complete nightmare so my colleagues who are like banging stories out and closing their computers up two minutes after the final whistle and and leaving i'm like my my hat's off to you but that's not for me the, when i was covering that australia serbia game my computer actually decided to reboot itself and spent 10 minutes <laughs> Um Tony Harper, who was my editor at um, Fairfax for many years and who was working for AAP, uh, was sitting next to me and he was writing a story for AAP and he was waiting for me and I'm saying, my computer's rebooted. Um, anyway, um, I digress. But what was interesting um, for me out of that story, I think I, I'd like being behind the scenes and telling the stories of what's actually happening uh, rather than what people just see in front of them. So, for example, um, you mentioned Mark Bosnich in 1996, 90, 97, I think it was. It was fascinating hearing him at that time when he was at Aston Villa and being the highest-profile Australian player and already and being very young, relatively, and still having incredible maturity and incredible insight as an athlete and as a human. And at that point, I remember thinking, this guy's going to go a long, 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 long way. And he did, and it didn't turn out as maybe he wanted or as fans wanted. Maybe it, he he took a an interesting path to where he is today. But at that point, I remember thinking this guy has got – a definite X factor. Same similarly, but completely different personalities could not be more different as Harry Kuehl. I had great insight uh, into him apparently specifically because when he first became um, something of a star in Australia, I was, and people were talking about him and writing about him, I was the only person who ever turned up to Leeds, Un- Leeds United's training ground and spoke to him and asked him things firsthand to his face. And he always remembered that and uh, built up a degree of trust with me and thought that, you know, if someone was going to tell his story, then I'm the person who was going to ask the questions and the right ones. So I got to spend time with Harry uh, when he was in England uh, when he was in Turkey at Galatasaray, when the Socceroos travelled, uh, w- when Australia played Uruguay, um, I was uh, snuck into um, his hotel with a with a photographer, and we sat on the roof of the hotel in Montevideo, and uh, just hung out on the deck chairs, which. Probably broke every uh, every rule, further, every rule. <laughs> as Bonnie, as a former team manager, you would have been shocked. Oh,
0: yeah, I'm going. I'm going wash here. <laughs>
1: um, but we did it. Um, it's amazing. This is in the early days of text messaging, where you could uh, arrange these kinds of meetings. Um, and uh, again, in South Africa in 2010, um, I, I remember being. It, it sounds really weird, but I remember he snuck into the 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 back door of the team hotel when they were staying in Johannesburg before they moved out to their uh, their camp, and uh, they'd it, it was decided it was not appropriate for me to be in the hotel and be seen in the hotel. They being the the Australian teams. Uh, Management. It was against protocols. So um, we got a room and Harry and I just hung out in the room watching TV. and stuff. So it's all a bit bizarre. Um, and then from that, um, I was uh, supposed to write Harry Kuehl's official biography. But as is explained in the book, If I Started to Cry, I Wouldn't Stop, um, a few things went awry. Uh, to prevent that from happening, um, mainly legal issues, well, totally legal issues, which means um, I'm sitting on the greatest story about Australian football that will unfortunately probably... Never be told. Never be told. <laughs> um, but it's it would have been a great book. Uh, Harry Kuehl has a cracking story. Um He's uh, got a very good sense of humour and uh, it would have been a good story. But one of the most other interesting stories I think in the book for me was when I spent time with um, Sydney United supporters in the in the 90s. They yes. had a reputation as being awful people and some of them were awful. But again, uh, I guess in a way like Harry Kill, rather than just read about it and look at it on TV and shake my head at what I saw on a – commercial TV stations of flares at Parramatta Stadium going off. I um, <clears throat> drove down to uh, a denser park and walked into the King Tom Club and said, G'day boys, how are you going? Um, to the Sydney United fans and said, I work for a magazine. Uh, at the time it was Rolling Stone magazine. I said, I want to hear everything you've got to say about being a Sydney United supporter. So I spent the next couple of weeks kind of as a bad blue boy Uh, Western (laughs) Sydney suburbs edition, and uh, it was a great insight into what was really going on, rather than uh, the the way that these guys were being portrayed in the media. So it was um, that to me um, is also a good experience. Think so. I think the reality finding the reality when there's a circus going on is 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 what I enjoy and and what I. uh, what motivates me to, to to tell these kinds of stories?
0: Yeah, which is what, what the book is. I mean, it's it's a series of stories which is really from behind the scenes. It's a, it's a front row seat behind the scenes. Um, and I think there's about 40 stories in there all up. And it's a great read. And anyone I know who has um, bought the book and read it all say that it's just such a great little snapshot of Australian football history. And uh, no doubt, Matt, you've got more stories to tell i mean I, I, I we've talked about this before as well i mean so do i there's so much that about australian football that between us and others that we know um you could really write quite a volume out of it and be quite entertaining as well as um probably you'd want to return to the title of your book if i started to cry i wouldn't <laughs> stop um but what, what are you working on at the moment uh, besides
1: your other work as coaching and teaching what what else Um, Well, um, I also wrote uh, a long time ago, um, 20 years ago now, The Away Game, uh, which was uh, the story of uh, Australian players who uh, went to Europe and uh, followed their dreams. And to me at that time, it was amazing that these teenagers, basically Australian teenagers, would pack up everything that they knew and they loved and head over to Europe to try and make it in uh, in Europe playing football. And some of them did, obviously. Harry Kuehl, John Aloisi, uh, Mark Viduka, Mark Bosnich, and others didn't. Um, but they all had uh, incredible stories to tell. So at the time, um, there was this huge phenomena of so many Australian players leaving Australia and trying to make it at the highest, highest, highest levels. And I don't think we really see that as much now, 20 years later, which is probably another story to tell as to why yes. that is. Um sure. And I thought it was a great uh, untold story. What what many people today might not realise is the media desert that Australian football existed in in the late 90s and and early 2000s. It these stories were truly not told. They did not exist. You might get a a, a five minute roundup on on SBS television on a Sunday afternoon, but that will be it. You didn't have all these games beamed into your living room. You couldn't look on the internet to see what was happening. You it just did not exist. I recall having to ring ring a ring a telephone number on a Sunday morning where you were charged something like a dollar a minute and Les Murray would ring read out the scores, bless him. Uh, I'm not sure how mu- how much of that my dollars per minute went to Les Murray, but um, I can probably think considering all the drinks he bought me at other times. Um, but that was one of the only ways you could find out what Australians were doing in Europe. So I kind of made it a bit of a mission to tell this stories of these guys and went to Europe and, uh, tracked them down, visited them at their clubs, visited them in their homes and told the stories of these guys. Um, So 20 years later, um, it's probably time to put it out again and so uh, another generation can learn the stories of these guys from the golden generation because many of the guys whose stories I told went on to play in the 2006 World Cup. Um, So those stories should not be forgotten and it would be great for for new people to learn those stories.
0: And can I add uh – we are republishing Matt's book, The Away Game. It is, it is a great read. It'll that was your out. cue. That was your cue. <laughs> I, I picked it up. and It'll be out before the end of the year, just in time, Can dare I say it, for a Christmas present. Um, so The Away Game, look out for it from Fair Play Publishing. Um, Matt, we're just at the end of of our time for the day and one question I've been asking everybody and we will get around to actually compiling um, this list, um, but a playlist of what's a song that you're listening to or piece of music that you're listening to at the moment?
1: Ooh, um, listened to yesterday a New Order playlist because a little known secret, I was once part of New Order's uh, road crew. I was a stage manager on a tour of Australia in the nineteen eighties.
0: What a life! So, <laughs> if we if we look up something from New Order, um, we'll pick something out and play a few bars of it at the end of this.
1: Sure, just, go right just, ahead.
0: Um, which which reminds me, uh, unfortunately, we're not going to see you this year. Um, at the Football Writers Festival, if we can actually hold the Football Writers Festival at the on the twenty sixth and twenty seventh of September in Sydney. But um, we do look forward to welcoming you back home to Australia um, in 2021 when we hold it again. Thank you very much for your time and keep safe in Brooklyn to you and and your lovely daughter and your friends and colleagues and, and thank you for your time this
1: morning. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for all the work you do and to anyone listening, wear a mask. Wear it all the time, even when we've uh, defeated this virus. Just keep wearing masks because they're cool.
0: Yeah, there's some good one. Oh, you have Brooklyn. That reminds me, you do have Brooklyn City ones, don't you? There are Brooklyn City masks. All you uh, A-League clubs out there or NPL clubs, how about some masks? Okay, see you, Matt.
1: All right, goodbye.
0: And as we close, I get to choose the song from New Order um, that Matthew says he's now listening to. And I'm going to choose a 1987 song called True Faith. And as we close with a little bit of that piece, Um, just just point out a few words from it, which is now that we've all grown up together, they're afraid of what they see. That's the price that we all pay and the value of destiny comes to nothing. That's an interesting point, isn't it, for Australian football? Until next week or until the next episode of Football Insiders, happy listening, stay safe, wash your hands and to all our friends in Melbourne, we're thinking of you. See ya. (laughs) listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fairplay Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.